It is good, our Father, to have a God whom we can worship. But to worship a God is not sufficient. It is only sufficient to worship when that God is supreme, exalted, infinite, sovereign, above all things and beyond all things. And you are such a God. And you are a faithful God. As we will find this morning, faithful to your covenanted promises. So would you guide us this morning as we consider your word? And would you encourage and stimulate our hearts? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How have you spent your COVID In our family, at least once a month on average, we have spent time outside working in the yard. We have been trimming shrubs, trimming trees, cutting down trees, eradicating unwanted shrubs and trees, and digging out stumps. I have, by my count, dug out somewhere between 10 and 12 shrub and tree stumps. I have used a variety of tools for the task. I've pulled out shovels, spades, hand trowels. I've pulled out various kinds of clippers. I have pulled out my hatchet, and when things got desperate, my chainsaw has made an appearance a time or two. And last Sunday, after chainsawing the first stump out and trying in desperation to chainsaw the second one out, I took drastic action against one last stump. Desperate times call for desperate measures. If you can't dig it out, burn it out. And so I sat with a measure of triumph on my face after having been unable to cut it out, dig it out, hack it out, to burn it out. A neighbor told Regine the next day, I saw y'all had a campfire in your front yard yesterday. It looked like so much fun. I was covered in sweat, having gone through two shirts, caked in dirt, three blisters on my hands, smoke-infused. I'm not sure I would call it fun. It was more like a tactical squad against a desperate enemy. But I won. As you think about the progress of the gospel, it might be tempting to think about the various opponents of the gospel and how God might respond to them and that God might respond to them in the same way that I think about my tree stump. And to say it is time for desperate measures. I will eradicate those who have rejected me. I will burn them out. I will remove them. We might think that about people in general, but we might think that about the nation of Israel in particular. Has God given up on Israel because of her terrible disobedience to him? Has he burned out the stump of Israel? Have his promises to Israel been given up? And has he moved on to Gentiles? Has he moved on to the church 
without consideration anymore for the nation of Israel? Or is there still hope for Israel? The passage before us this morning, the Apostle Paul culminates his argument about the sovereignty of God in salvation and tells us in verses 25 to 32 that the Israelites have indeed rebelled against God, but God will yet save his people, Israel. Individual Israelites have rebelled. Individual Israelites have been hardened. But the people as an entity will be saved by God. As we look at verses 25 to 27 this morning, we will be, we will find three truths about the mystery of God's salvation. Three truths about the mystery of God's salvation. The first of these is given to us at the beginning of verse 25. It is a mystery revealed. A mystery revealed. In concluding his discussion about God's sovereignty and salvation, the apostle says that he does not want the Romans, notice this verse 25, he does not want the Romans to be uninformed of this mystery. That is, he wants them to be informed. He wants them to know something so that, so that um, they will have understanding about God's workings. They will have understanding about his, his particular work that he has hidden from them previously. Notice he says, I want you to be informed about this mystery. Biblically, a mystery is some truth about God's work or God's will that has been previously hidden, but is now in the process of being revealed by God. We find Paul's own explanation of what a mystery is in chapter 16. You can just turn a couple of pages over to there. Verse 25 The apostle says, now to him, in the benediction to the book, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. In other words, the mystery is something which to this point has been hidden but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. Now we have this mystery that has been hidden, but now it is being exposed. So a mystery in the scriptures is something that God has hidden, but then he reveals. And, and most often in the New Testament, as, as the apostle particularly speaks about mystery, he's talking about some aspect of the gospel And most often, as he's thinking about the gospel, he's thinking about how Jew and Gentile have been brought together to experience together the promises of God in salvation. We find that particularly in Ephesians chapter 3. And that is the mystery that is being exposed in this chapter. At the end of this verse, the mystery is that there has been a partial hardening to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel has been hardened partially so that so that the Gentiles could be grafted into the promises of God. That's the mystery that's been hidden but is now being revealed. And why why does the apostle want them to know that? Why doesn't he want them to be uninformed? Notice what he says. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He doesn't say that he doesn't want them to be wise. 
but that they, he doesn't want them to be wise in their own estimation, in their own thinking about themselves. In other words, he doesn't want them to be an exalted view of themselves. He doesn't want them to overestimate who they are and what they are. He doesn't want them to move into arrogance and pride. It is Paul's way of reminding us that everything that we have in salvation is because of grace. It is never by our own merit. It is never by our own accomplishments. It is never by what we have done on our own. That is true of Israel, and it is true of the Gentiles who have received God's promises to Israel. And we must beware of committing the same Pride, sin, sin of pride that the Israelites have committed. And the apostle doesn't want Gentiles and doesn't want the church to, to fall into those same prideful attitudes of, it's all about me. And it's all what I have accomplished. And it's all about my position. And it's all about my exaltedness. And that's why God has chosen me. No, Paul says, it's not about you. It is about the exalted nature of God. And Paul wants the Romans and us to know that there is no wisdom in self-exaltation. So he reveals to us the mystery of God's work. It's not just a mystery revealed. It is also, starting in the middle of verse 25, a mystery explained. And there are three aspects to this mystery that Paul will unfold for us. The first is that Israel was partially hardened temporarily. Israel was partially hardened temporarily. Notice what he says, starting in the middle of verse 25, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. When he talks about hardening, he's talking about those who resist God. They are firmly set against God. They are choosing to ignore God. They are saying no to his demands. It is a commitment of one's total being against God. It is the intellect. It is the heart. It is the mind. It is the actions. Everything about that individual is persistent in rejecting God, both inwardly and outwardly. He is resistant to God, hardened against God, wants nothing to do with God. He is against Him in every way. And those who are hardened against God, they are completely hardened against God. But not all are hardened. And the Apostle makes that point clear when he says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. When he says a partial hardening has happened, he is referring to the number of Israelites that are hardened. He is saying some are hardened. Perhaps even many are hardened. But he is he is not saying that all Israel is hardened. In fact, this whole chapter speaks against that, doesn't it? Starting in verse 1, he reminds of his own salvation. And being an Israelite, the fact that he is saved by God means that means that he is part of a remnant that is not rejected by God. He has not been hardened. And then starting in verse 7 all the way through verse 10, he speaks about others among Israel who have not been hardened against the gospel so that there is a remnant that have been preserved. So many are hardened. A lot are hardened. But not all are hardened. Not every individual of Israel has rejected God. There is a remnant that still believes. Even 
Even in the day of Christ, even when the Pharisees said of Jesus, the works that you do are by Beelzebub, by Satan, and they come from him. Even in that day, there was still a remnant of God that existed. There were still those who followed after Jesus while he was on earth. There's always been a remnant of salvation. Not all are hardened. So there's a partial hardening. And there's a partial hardening Not for an eternal duration, but for a limited duration. Notice the end of the verse. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That is, until the elect Gentiles are saved. Only until then will there be a partial hardening. And then that partial hardening will be removed. It is is temporary. There is a time when Israel will be saved. Some are being hardened now. But there is still hope. For the the nation, there's still confidence that the nation will be saved. I I love what theologian William G.T. Shedd has said. The reprobation is total whenever it occurs, but it does not occur to every individual of the nation. The qualification is extensive, not intensive, denoting the number of the hardened, not the degree of. Of the hardening. The reprobate. Are only a part of the Jews. Oh friends that is hopeful. For the nation of Israel. When they are wondering. Will God still keep his covenant with us? God has promised to save us. Will he keep that covenant? And this is Paul's way of saying. Yes. There is still a hope for the nation of Israel. The hardening is not complete. There are some that are being saved even now, and there is a time when the rest will also be saved. There's another aspect of the mystery that we need to understand, and that is that Gentiles are receiving from Israel's blessing. This is the end of verse 25. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Again, that that means that the hardening has a time limit. It will only happen... Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That is, there is a number of Gentiles that God has chosen, elected, selected for salvation. And when that number is complete, when every last Gentile that God has chosen for salvation is in, then he will fulfill his promises to Israel. And what's interesting that as the, as the apostle thinks about this, he anticipates that this is coming soon. Just turn a page or two to chapter 13. Notice verse 11. Do this. 13.11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now... Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Oh, friends, we're coming close. We're getting close. The culmination, the end of our salvation is drawing near. Verse 12, the night is almost gone. The night of darkness 
The night of depravity is almost gone. The day is near. The day of the Lord. The day of Christ's coming. The day of Christ's kingship. The day of Christ's rule is coming. And it is soon. Gentiles have been chosen. And that number is filling up. There are more today than there were yesterday. We're closer to the fulfillment of his kingdom. It's coming soon. And when it comes, the Israelites will receive what has been promised to them. Paul's point with this short phrase is that the fullness of the Gentiles will be the end of Israel's hardening. There's coming a day when in God's sovereign grace, He will soften the hearts of the nation of Israel and the nation will be redeemed. He will save them just like He saves you and me. He awakens our hearts. He softens our hearts. And He makes us to respond to Him in faith. We, we have not supplanted Israel, but in God's amazing kindness, He has put Israel on hold so He could fold us in to the promises made to Israel. We are receiving, not in place of their blessings, but from their blessings. He still has a plan for them. That's verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. As I have anticipated this chapter, as I've anticipated this section, and even this week as I read through that verse, I was moved to the verge of tears and into tears on multiple occasions. If this is, if this section is the pinnacle of the chapter, if this section is the pinnacle, and I believe it is, on God, on Paul's teaching, on his God's sovereignty and salvation, then this is the pinnacle phrase of this section. All Israel will be saved. And in that brief phrase, the apostle answers five questions about Israel's salvation. He answers the question, how will they be saved? Notice he says, and so. We might think by that little phrase that he's talking about when they will be saved. I don't think the apostle is talking about when they will be saved, but that little phrase, and so, can be translated or given the nuance in this way. And Paul is talking not so much about the timing of their salvation, but the, but how they will be saved. And he has unfolded for us already how it is that Israel will be saved. And he's unfolded really in the whole chapter, but maybe verse 11 serves as a, as a concise statement of how they will be saved. So they will be saved as a remnant of individuals along the way. So verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? So, so not all of them have, have fallen, not all of them have rebelled, but, but they have not, they, and they have not lost the promises of God's covenant. 
But they are set on hold, again verse 11, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So, so God has hardened some of them, but not all of them, saving a remnant. And while he is saving a remnant of individuals, he's also saving Gentiles. And then, as Gentiles are saved, verse 11, he does that, God does that, to make them jealous, to make Israel jealous, so Israel will respond in faith. That's a, that's a small, concise statement of what Paul means when he says, and so, this is the means by which Israel will be saved. They'll be put on hold, some will be hardened, Gentiles will be folded in, and then they will be provoked to jealousy, and then the nation will be saved. How will they be saved? Another question that the apostle answers is, who will be saved? And so all Israel will be saved. That is, Israel, the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, national Israel, that had received God's covenant. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in these chapters, chapters 9 to 11, as he's unfolding God's sovereignty and salvation, uses the term Israel ten times. Every single time, it is absolutely clear he is talking about ethnic, national Israel. We we won't look at all of them, but but, uh, consider, uh, for instance, chapter 9, Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel, Israelites from the nation of Israel, who are descended from Israel, who are born as national Israelites. That's clear. He's talking there about a national entity, ethnic Israel. Chapter 10, verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? That is, the Israelite people, the the national people of Israel. Chapter uh, 10, verse 21. But as for Israel, the nation, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. When he gets down after using all those terms for Israel all through these chapters to refer to national Israel, it is clear as he gets to this verse, verse 26, that he's talking about national Israel, the Jewish people, the people with whom he made his covenant. He is not talking about Gentiles. He is not talking about the church. He is not saying that the church is now the new Israel and we have supplanted Israel. No, he is talking very clearly about national Israel. And to call the church Israel would be um, to go against everything that he has been talking about in these chapters. He, when he says Israel, means Israel, national Israel, God's covenanted people starting with Abraham. They will be saved. How many of them will be saved? That's a third question. All Israel. He means the totality of the nation. I've said it for years this way. The nation as a nation. So the nation as a national entity. So so when he says all Israel will be saved, he means the nation as a totality will be saved. Now, we don't necessarily mean every single individual within the nation, but we mean... The nation generally, or the nation in large part, or the, the nation in the main. That, that little phrase, all Israel, is used about 150 times in the Old Testament. And on multiple occasions, it means 
all the nation as in the totality of the nation, the, the great preponderance of the nation, though not necessarily every single individual within the nation. Consider 1 Kings chapter 12. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now does, does the writer of Kings mean every single Israelite was in Shechem? No, it just means the vast preponderance of the people um, have come to Shechem. Daniel will use the term somewhat similarly. Daniel chapter 9. In his prayer in verse 11, he says this. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. Now, does he, say, does he mean every single Israelite? No, but he does mean the vast preponderance of the people of Israel. And that's the way the apostle is using that term here. When he says all Israel, he may not mean necessarily every single individual Israelite, but the nation as a nation has been redeemed and will be redeemed. Fourth question. What will be the means of their salvation? Christ. We're going to see this in just a moment. A deliverer will come from Zion. The deliverer obviously is Jesus Christ. And there is salvation only in Jesus Christ. That's been his emphasis throughout this book. Chapter 10, verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew or Greek, if you want to be saved, you have to be saved through Christ. Chapter 11, verse 23, speaking about Israel. We saw this last week. They also, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, and in the context he's talking about their unbelief about Jesus, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. If Israel's going to believe, they're going to have to believe and be saved by their Redeemer. And they will. How do we know? That's the last question. How do we know they will be saved? What does it say? So, all Israel will be saved. That's a future tense That means it's something that's going to happen in the future, but it doesn't just mean that it's going to happen in the future. It means it will happen. Christ will save His people. God has promised salvation, and He will bring about that salvation. Is this really true? That that Israel will be saved after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? Yes, this mystery is affirmed in the rest of scriptures. Verse 26, the apostle quotes from Isaiah chapter 59 and says that God will provide a deliverer for Israel. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 11. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59, as we read it earlier, I noted that Isaiah makes clear 
the theme that God is able to save His people, that starts in the very first verse. The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. God is, God, God is not so incompetent that He cannot save His people Israel. His arm is not too short to reach out and grab them and save them. His ear is not so dull. Those of us who are getting a little bit older, we're not hearing all the sounds that we used to hear. That's not true with the eternal God. His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. He hears every request for salvation. He is powerful. And as we make our way through this chapter, we've seen the sin of Israel. We've seen the consequences of their sin. Verse 16 is striking, isn't it? God looks and he saw that there was no man to save Israel. There was none that could come and save Israel on their own. There, there was no one to intercede for Israel. Then, verse 16, His own arm brought salvation to Him. God Himself acted to bring salvation, to bring His people to Him. And we see that in verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion. A Redeemer will come to Israel. A Redeemer will come to Jerusalem. That term Zion can refer to either the nation of Israel as a totality or more specifically to Jerusalem. And and the Redeemer came to both, didn't he? And Paul says, Paul tweaks that that quotation ever so slightly where where Isaiah says, the Deliverer will come to Zion. And the Apostle says the Deliverer will come from Zion. And both are true, aren't they? The Deliverer came from Israel and He came to Israel to save His people. And who is this Redeemer? This Redeemer is none other than the Savior Jesus Christ. The Apostle speaks of Him in similar terms in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Speaking about the the faith of the Thessalonians, he says to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues or delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the deliverer. And though Isaiah does not make it clear in his prophecy, he is speaking of none other than the Savior Jesus Christ. God has promised and delivered a deliverer to the nation of Israel. God has provided what Israel could not provide for herself. And what will this Redeemer do? Verses 26 and the end of verse 27, He will forgive Israel's sin. The Redeemer will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. From Jacob means simply from the nation of Israel. The sense is that God will produce repentance from all ungodliness All rebellion of Israel against God is taken away. This is not a political Messiah. This is a Messiah for sin. This is a, this is a sin Messiah, a saving Messiah. He will remove all ungodliness. And then at the end of verse 27, the apostle amplifies that when he says, when I take away their sins. That's a quotation, not from Isaiah 59, but from Isaiah 27. In Isaiah 27, verse 9, he says, Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. 
And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. He will, Israel, have all his sin forgiven. God will remove the penalty of sin. He will cleanse them. He will wash them whiter than snow. What's interesting is in the context of Isaiah chapter 27, God is talking about a temporary judgment that comes against Israel, like the striking of him, verse 7, who has struck them. Excuse me, like the striking of him who has struck them. Has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away with his fierce wind. He, God, has expelled them on the day of the east wind. He, he is purifying them. He is judging them. He is disciplining them. For what purpose? Verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. There's coming a day when Israel will receive the promises that God has granted them, and the whole world will reap from that the promises that God has given them. Again, that's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's in that context, discipline is coming in order to make you fruitful, that Isaiah says, Isaiah 27, 9, Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. Even when Israel was in captivity, salvation and forgiveness are promised. God will forgive Israel's sins. And God has given an unconditional, unilateral promise to that effect. Notice verse 27. This is my covenant with them. This is God's covenant. This is not Israel's covenant with God. This is God's promise to Israel. It is an unconditional promise. It is a promise, Genesis chapter 12, that God makes unconditionally. In other words, they do not have to do anything to merit this promise. It is unconditionally given to them. They do not have to do anything to attain it. They do not, they cannot do anything to merit it. It is given to them solely on the basis of God's grace. It is also unilaterally given to them. In Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, when God um, ratifies the covenant, He makes He makes uh, Abraham to go to sleep, and He takes the animals and He cuts them in two, and He separates them, and God alone walks through the sacrificed animals, a sign that He alone is responsible to keep the covenant. It is a unilateral covenant; God alone makes it. And he irrevocably makes it. It cannot be rescinded. We see that in Genesis chapter 17. If you're reading along in the Bible reading plan for the year, we read this morning Psalm 89 and speaking about the covenant that God makes with David, an extension of the promise that he made to Abraham He says this, Psalm 89, verse 34, My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips 
Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me, it will be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. It is God's covenant and he will keep that covenant eternally. He will save his people. God is faithful to accomplish what he has said to Israel. He is faithful to accomplish what he has said to us. What will we think about this passage? Let me give you five quick lessons learned. One theologian has said about Romans chapter 11, 25 to 32, that they constitute, those verses constitute one of the most important prophecies in the New Testament. It is true. This is essential not only for Israel. Friends, this is essential for us because if God is not faithful to Israel, he will not be faithful to us. But if he is faithful to Israel, he will be faithful to us. So let us remember grace. Let us remember that everything we have is of God's grace. We merit nothing but his wrath. We deserve none of his kindness. But when we are saved, we get none of his wrath and all of his kindness. Friends, that should make us humble. That should never lead us to arrogance. And that should always make us grateful. Remember remember grace as well in this sense. Not every hardening is a permanent hardening. God is able to soften the hardest heart. And he can soften hearts at the last minute. Remember the thief on the cross who went onto that cross a hardened criminal and came off of that cross a redeemed man. Oh, friends, he can soften the hardest heart. He softened mine. He softened yours. He will soften Israel's. Those whom you long for to come to salvation, he can soften them as well. Remember grace. Remember also glory. When God gives grace, it is not so that we are put on display. It is so that he is put on display. So that he is glorified. And whenever we receive grace from his hand, we should turn in exaltation to him. Remember Israel. Our salvation is ultimately for the salvation of Israel. They are God's people. Pray for and delight in and evangelize God's people, Israel. Yearn for and expect their salvation. Friends, it's coming and we're getting close. Remember, the end is coming. I've already said it. Every time a Gentile trusts in Jesus Christ, we have moved one, close, one person closer to the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. There is a time limit to our time on earth. God is patient, but there is a time limit on God's patience. Remember chapter 2, verses 4 and 5? God is patient, but that patient has a termination point, And that patience is only so that people will come into faith. And if people reject, 
one point God will reject them and send them to hell. God is a patient God, but the end is coming. And so if you do not yet trust in Jesus Christ, if Christ is not your Savior this morning, if you have not placed your faith in Him, oh friend, make today the day of salvation, for you do not know that you will have tomorrow. You do not know that God will be un- continue to be unrelenting in His faithfulness. He may, he may tomorrow end His patience with you. And He may send you into eternity. Today is a day for you to respond in faith. If you have not trusted, will you turn away from your sin today? Will you believe in Jesus as your Savior today? And friend, if you have trusted Christ, because the end is coming, live with urgent holiness. Remember remember what I read from Romans chapter 13? The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Oh, friends, the day is coming. Let us hasten to live as if that day is coming. And then finally, remember that God remembers. When He makes promises, He cannot forget them. He remembers them. He unerringly is faithful in keeping the promises that He has made to His people. He will keep His promise to Israel. He will keep His promise to us. Our Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for the grace of these words, for the reminder of Your covenant promises. Would You use these words to make us hopeful Would you make, use these words to make us holy? Would you use these words to make us bold with the gospel? First for your people Israel, and then for the Gentiles who are around, who are around us, who also need salvation. Father, would you make us to delight in the grace that you have shown your people? Would you make us to delight in the grace you have shown us? And may we always exalt you and never ourselves. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.